have one significant announcement, and that is that this Saturday morning we have our men's prayer breakfast, and we're, we're going to continue over the next, uh, this month and June, should be close to wrapping up that study on how should we then live and making some application, which is really interesting where that ends, especially in light of the upcoming election. And then I had a, had a meeting where I got to know, um, spend some time talking to Paul Betancourt last week, and so you can pray. I'm going to get a hold of him this week, see if he can come and speak to us. And that would include more than the men, okay? And he is a state's very conservative state senator. In fact, if you voted in the last election, and I don't know what happened. I, we went to, and voted, and those propositions related to the Constitution were not on our ballot. I don't know why that was in Spring Branch. It was just school school. Uh, school board stuff, but that was not there, but it turned out good. And he is the author of both of those uh, propositions. Uh, he's a very, very solid believer and, and uh, conservative. So we need to, um, I'm going to see if I can get him and maybe a couple of other folks who are running for office, going to be running for office in this next, um, next uh, election t- time in November and see if we can get them to come out. And, I mean, every time I listen to Paul Betancourt, I realize I don't know really what goes on in state government. He is very uh, very well informed and does an outstanding job of informing people as to what's really going on uh, behind the scenes in Austin. So that's, that's very important. So we need to be in prayer for that. I think we have the runoff in another... Uh, 10 or 11 days, and we need to be praying for that. That's on May 24th, and there will be early voting leading up to that. So it's kind of confusing because we had a school board election this last week, and now the election in the runoff for the state offices is on the 24th, and I think about the week before, something like that. You can look it up. That's when they'll have the early voting, so make sure you are uh, ready and prepared for that. And then we'll be back down here next Monday morning, and hopefully we'll get a few more volunteers to come down and help carrying books back and forth. Uh, it's, just, it w- it's a project that if there are enough hands, we can get it done in a day. If there are not, it'll be a month, which just delays your pastor from getting work done that he needs to do other than just shuffling books back and forth. So we'll just put it that way. All right, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Before we open God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, confessing sin, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin in silent prayer to the Lord, and instantly we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before I open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that we have you to come to, that you are always involved in our lives, overseeing whatever your plan is for our life in your providential care. And as believers in Christ walking by the Spirit, we know that you uh, are intimately involved in our relationship with you as we walk by the Spirit. Father, we're thankful that we have your word that is a light unto our path and a a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And, Father, we pray that we'd be responsive to its illumination. It is so often that people decide on the basis of feeling, on the basis of opinion, on the basis of uh, their own uh, personal tradition, uh, whether they're going to accept what the Word of God actually says. And, Father, we are all that way, and we pray that we might not succumb to the arrogance in our own souls from our sin nature, but that we might be willing to submit to what your word says. And, Father, we pray that as we study tonight, it will give us insight into uh, perhaps our own thinking, insight into what goes on in the world around us, in our own culture, and insight into uh, what happens as a result of letting paganism control a culture. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in uh, Judges chapter 6, and tonight we're going to be looking at Gideon's commission in Judges 6, 11 down to 24. We spent the last two lessons looking at what the Bible teaches about the identity of the angel of the Lord who is introduced for the uh, first time in, or the second time, actually, we studied it a little bit in chapter 2, the angel of the Lord coming now to commission uh, Gideon. And as I pointed out, as we go through this, I'll get to it in a second, but we have this basic breakdown that we see that characterizes almost any culture that succumbs to paganism. And paganism is living as if God does not exist. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, a lot of people think that's talking about an atheist. I think it's talking about people who live practically as if there is no God because they are thinking that, well, I'm not accountable. God's really not there. He's not paying attention to me or whatever it is. Uh, They act as if. Uh, God does not exist. It's not necessarily saying that that this is a Madeline Murray O'Hare or some other uh, pronounced atheist is someone who is functionally an atheist. That's what paganism is. And so you build your whole scale of values and everything that you do, your priorities, your focus in life, your decisions, everything flows out of this framework that excludes God. 
And so this is what happened to Israel, is they started off well during this period, and they end up being absolutely worse than the most horrific culture on earth, and that's the culture of the Canaanites. There have been a few that might compete for that, such as the Aztecs down in Mexico and a number of uh, uh, groups in India and some in Africa, but it doesn't really get much worse than the, than the Canaanites. And so we see how it infects the leadership. And we have, a, just watch the news. Don't, it'll just get you out of fellowship. Just rhetorically speaking, watch the news. And the reports on the shenanigans from just about anybody in Washington, D.C., they are operating on something that is totally antithetical to the Constitution and totally antithetical to what the Word of God says, which is what undergirds the Constitution. There's such hatred. There's such vitriol that comes out of especially the the left, the far left, but most of the left just because they have rebelled against the standards that God has set forth in, in his word, and they're angry and they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And this also happens in uh, the among religious leaders, and it's happening all the time with, with uh, leaders and pastors, so-called pastors in so-called churches uh, throughout the country and the people. And so it's just, a, it is a uh, an extremely complex interaction of a number of different different things that just lead to this total ev- spiritual evisceration of a culture and that's what judges teaches us so we see this cycle we also see it in our own lives there's disobedience and then there's divine discipline and then we uh, turn to god in the case of what we've seen in judges a lot of times they just cry out to god there's no turning back to god they just cry out and god in his grace meets them where they are and that's the way it is with us that's one of the most important lessons in judges is God meets us where we are, not where we ought to be, not where he would like us to be, not where uh, we think we ought to be, but God meets us where we are, and he does that with Gideon. It's just amazing in this section as the angel of the Lord comes and uh, sits down and observes Gideon, and then we observe the conversation that takes place, how God is just so patient with Gideon and how Gideon is really a picture of a two-souled believer because one point he's he acts like he's going to be obedient to the Lord he respects the angel of the Lord recognizes this is Yahweh and he brings a sacrifice and then 30 seconds later uh, he's he's trying to wiggle out of the responsibility that God has given him and I know you don't know anybody like that and I don't either but it's very common among Christians as well. So we go from uh, to this grace deliverance, and then just just like uh, Peter said, like a dog returning to its vomit, we just go back to the same uh, sins and the same problems. So we get into this Gideon cycle, and as I've pointed out in all the previous lessons, we've got one verse describing their apostasy. We've got five verses describing the discipline, and then we have 94 verses out of a, out of a hundred. 
94 out of 100 is an A minus. So that's pretty good for grace. God is being very gracious to Israel, and that's what we need to really focus on is the grace aspect in all of this. So uh, having talked about the angel of the Lord, we covered that last time. Uh, Judges 6.11 starts off now. The angel of the Lord came and sat under a terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. So we get into this passage. We understand that that Gideon reaches the point where he recognizes that the angel of the Lord is the same as Yahweh. And as a result, he understands that he is, by the time we get to close to 24, he realizes that because he has seen Yahweh, that his life is in danger, and then God treats him in grace. The angel of the Lord is in actuality the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, as we saw in the last two lectures, last two lessons. He is... um, it's not my, like an angel like Michael or Gabriel or one of the other angels, but is a d- distinctive term for uh, the second person of the Trinity whose role is to reveal the Father. And as such, he is the messenger from the Father. That's what Malaak refers to. That's the Hebrew word for, uh, for angel. And its, its counterpart in the New Testament is angelos, which in Greek means the same thing. It means a messenger. So this is talking, about, though, about a special and distinctive messenger who is the angel of the Lord. So this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and he appears throughout Judges and is the one who brings condemnation as well as deliverance to Israel. So the angel of Yahweh came and sat under the terebinth tree. Now, we don't know what a terebinth tree was. That is a transliteration of the, of the Hebrew. And some of your translations, they will translate it periodically as an oak. Sometimes it's translated as an elm, uh, but, and sometimes it's thought that it refers to a pepper tree. But nobody knows. It is, uh, the original meaning is uncertain. So uh, we're just going to call it a terebinth tree to make sure that, that we're, we're accurate. So he is under a terebinth tree, which is located in Ophrah. And Ophrah, is, there are two different locations for Ophrah in the scripture, two different Ophrahs, and sometimes they're confused. In fact, uh, some years ago when I was in Israel and went on my first trip into the West Bank, uh, we were taken up to a an observation point when from there you could look back and you could see all along the Jordan River, you could see from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea, and then you could look to the, to the west and you could see Shkim in the uh, a little bit distance in Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, and this was, and then not far from there, we stopped at a place that was Ophrah, but this was Ophrah of, um, 
up in Samaria, and they even have a, a tomb there for Gideon. But that's not the tomb of Gideon, and that is not, um, that is not the Ophir that is being talked about here. Now, what's interesting, there's an archaeological find recently of a, of a, of a shard that had the, that was dated to this time period, and they discovered when they looked at the ancient Hebrew, the Proto-Hebraic script there, that it mentioned the name of Gideon. Now, we don't know if that is the Gideon that Judges 6 is talking about, but what it tells us is that this is a common name in that time period, in the period of about uh, 1300 to 1400 um, B.C. Ophrah is located uh, on this map, and we'll, we'll see this map several times because it's really outlining the uh, troop movements in the uh, battle against the Midianites. But if you orient yourself so that you recognize that over here on this little point where the coastline makes this dip, this is where modern Haifa is located. This is the only deep water port in Western Mediterranean, which is, a, I think, significant. And you have a intermittent stream that runs through here. That's the brook Kishon, which, was, which flooded, and that was instrumental. They, God used that to defeat the, uh, the Canaanites and their chariots under Deborah and Barak. And if you go from the, at an angle from the northwest uh, here to the southeast, that's the Valley of Jezreel. The label for that is located over here, but it runs right through this area here. And over here is Mount Gilboa and Beit Shan, where if you've been to Israel with me, um, that was one of the cities of the Decapolis, but it had been rebuilt, and it was at, at, sort of on the backside of Mount Gilboa, and there was a, an ancient Canaanite city there at, at Bechan. This is where, uh, after Saul was defeated on Mount Gilboa, this is where they hung his body, headless body, from the walls of, of Bechan. So that gives you a little bit of orientation. And at the foot of Mount Gilboa here, there's kind of a ridge line here. It's where you have Herod Spring. That's going to become important because this is where Gideon will thin out uh, have his troops and volunteers thinned out to the 300. And it is just across the valley from Ophrah, which is Gideon's hometown, very small village. And so this is the area that will be instrumental as we get into talking about the battle. But this is the Ophrah that is being talked about here. And this this territory here, just to the south, you see it's West Manasseh, Manasseh was a tribe that was split so that half the tribe had their inheritance on the west bank, on the west side, and the other half of Manasseh was east and on, across the Jordan in the, in the Transjordan area. So as we get further into the battle and everything, that this is the area that we'll be focusing on. So this is the location of Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abizrite. Now, the Abizrites were a clan of Manasseh, according to Joshua 17.2, that there was a lot or an inheritance given to the rest of the children of Manasseh, according to their families, 
for the children of Abiezer. Now, that's an important name to remember. He is of the clan of the Avizrites. Abi is my father. The A-B or A-B is the Hebrew word for father. So the diminutive or the term of endearment is to call your father daddy or Abba. But when it has the I, Abi, that means my father. So you have Abi and then Ezer is a word that we have seen in Genesis chapter 3 that uh, God said that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone and he needed a helpmate. He needed a helper, an assistant, an Ezer. And so what this means is my father is the helper. So he is from a clan where this is the background and the meaning of of that name is my father is a helper. And what we're going to see is he's He's going to deny that by his by his actions. He's he's going to deny the sufficiency uh, of God's uh, grace and God's power. So we see here that that the term Joash the Abizrite is a is part of this background to understand because there's sort of a play on this word as you go through this, and that's one of the interesting things about the book of Judges is when you go through this in the Hebrew, and it was true for Samuel to a large degree, there, there's so many paranomasia, that's a fancy word for a pun, they're word plays, but the word plays are designed to bring out points to get you to think about something. And the word plays are very subtle, and they're usually lost in translation, so uh, we don't always pick up on that, and that's one of the things that I've always enjoyed about studying Hebrew, but you really have to dig a lot to find out a lot about these uh, these v- various puns. So Joash the Abizrite and his son Gideon is threshing wheat in the uh, threshing wheat in the in the wine press. The word Gideon means someone who is who hacks things, not a, an internet hacker but who chops something up, uh, means a hacker or a hewer of wood, uh, someone who fells trees, cuts them down. And um, it can also imply someone who is a, a, a great warrior. Now, that's interesting on this play of words because when the angel of the Lord finally addresses him in verse 12, he says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And there's a lot of debate on what that means. We'll get to that in a minute, whether this is sarcasm or, or, or some sort of uh, uh, a confidence builder or just predicting what, what will take place in, in the future. But this is his son Gideon, and Gideon has that me- meaning, and he's threshing wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. So this is a picture of a wine press from roughly that time period. And so you see that they have uh, dug out, cut their way into the rock. There's a ladder there to go down to the bottom. And this is where they would be uh, uh, pressing the grapes and um, to make wine. But in this case, it's being used to thresh 
uh, thresh wheat because this is uh, thought to be a, a, a safe place that would be out of the view of the Midianites. And so in the absence of any kind of modern technology, what they would do is they would take the grain and then they would first uh, beat it or crush the heads of the stalks and um, and then they would separate the by throwing it up in the air and the wind would um, uh, blow away the uh, straw and the chaff. Then the heavier grains of, uh, of wheat would fa- fall to the floor. And so this doing this out in the open where you're really going to have a good breeze was out of the question because that's giving away your position. And for seven years, they have watched the complete dis- loss of their crops and their... Uh, their their harvest by the Midianites coming through. And so this really, I don't think, I think it's unfair to Gideon to say that, you know, he's just cowering down in this um, wine press. He is doing what a lot of people do. He's protecting his investment. He wants to uh, make sure that he doesn't lose uh, his crop and lose what he has uh, worked hard for uh, to the uh, to the enemy, and there's a lot of people who do that. They shelter their money in various ways, and they put it into uh, secure investments, things of that nature. And nobody says, "Well, you're 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 kind of being a a bit of a coward by uh, hiding your money or by uh, protecting it in certain ways." And but that's what he's doing. He's protecting what he has because he knows the Midianites are going to come along. And we've already read uh, earlier in the in the chapter, uh, in, in verse 5, that the Midianites would come and they were as numerous as, as locusts. And so the people were I- impoverished and they would have to go and hide out in the caves and create caves. So everybody is doing this because they're under attack in a, in a vicious war. So he's attempting to protect his investment uh, from the Midianites. And while he is down there working hard, uh, he is uh, he's in a position where he is uh, uh, protected and the angel of the Lord is going to appear to him and just watch him. That's what we see. While he's doing that, the angel of the Lord came, sat under the terebinth tree, and uh, watched while uh, Gideon is doing this. And then he hasn't appeared to him yet. He is not visible. And then he appears to him in verse 12 and says to him, Yahweh is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, before we get too far into this, we have to recognize that in verse 15, Gideon is going to try to weasel and wiggle his way out of this commission. He's going to say to him, say to the Lord, he's going to say, Oh, my Lord, recognizing that he knows that the angel of the Lord is Yahweh. How can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and at least in my father's house. Uh, now, a problem that we run into here is that he's kind of making that up. When we look at what is said a little later, 
uh, God is going to c- commission him to destroy the uh, the altar to Baal that has been built at his father's house. Now, that tells us a lot. We'll get into other parts of it. tells us a lot about the way his father's house is totally compromised with the pagan worldview of the, of the Canaanites. But uh, what we see is that his house, his father's house, is the location for the temple to Baal and the Asherah for the local village. This is a situation of some prestige and significance. So that tells you that he's not from the weakest clan and the most insignificant family. In fact, it also tells us that um, uh, in the verse 27 that Gideon took 10 men from among his servants. So that tells you he has more than 11 servants. He's taking 10 from among. That means there's more than 10. So he's got at least 11. He may have 20 or 30 servants. That tells you he is a man of some substance, that he has a large number of servants. His father's house is the most significant location in uh, the village. It's where the local um, the local altar to Baal is located. And so there is something significant going on there. And so he's just making it up when he says, oh, I'm just not very important. I'm from the smallest family, and uh, you don't need to use me for this. Who does that remind you of? Moses, that's right. Moses was one who God commissions him in Exodus chapter 3. There are a lot of similarities here. God is commissioning Moses, and Moses says, no, I don't speak very well. You need to find somebody else. But but Moses turns out a lot better than uh, than Gideon does. So we have several parallels with Moses. The, the first parallel is that when uh, Gideon is being commissioned by the Lord, he, he, he's, we're told that the Lord... Uh, says to him, I will send you. And that's this same word that we have in the Hebrew, shalaktika. And shaliach, or shalach, is a verb for to send. Shaliach refers to somebody who is set on a mission. And, for example, even today in modern Hebrew, uh, we've had... Uh, uh, Idan Pesachovich here, who I met about 10 years ago in, in Kiev, and at that time he was the director of uh, the national director for Jaffe, the Jewish Agency for Israel, which has as its mission identifying Jews in various countries and encouraging them, teaching them what it means to be Jewish, and then encouraging them to immigrate or make Aliyah uh, to Israel. And so he is called, that role is called a shaliach because he has been commissioned and sent out from Israel to regather Jews and bring them home to to the land. So this is the commissioning word that Yahweh is um, sending him. And we see this in um, in verse 14. Uh, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So we see the parallel in Exodus three eleven and twelve. This is <coughs> excuse me. This is when 
Moses had seen that oddity of the burning bush up on the uh, hillside. And so he makes his way to look at it, and then God appears to him. And so uh, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Because God has just commissioned him, I will send you to Pharaoh. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, that is God said, I will certainly be with you. Now, that's an important statement. Uh, I will certainly be with you. We're going to look at that uh, again in just a minute. God says, first of all, I will be with you. That is always a statement in Scripture that God of God's gracious provision to protect and empower someone to whom he is, the person to whom he is speaking. Second, he says, this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. That's that word shaliach, shalak. So did Moses ask for a sign? No. But what you'll see is that that possibly Gideon's trying to remember this, but I don't think he has quite that much doctrine or scriptural understanding, or maybe he just knows the story. But he will ask for a sign. But Moses did not ask for a sign. God just volunteered it and said, This shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So that's the first parallel with Moses. The second parallel with Moses is that there is an accompanying fear-induced fire theophany. That means that, that there is an appearance of God, that it involves fire, and it induces fear into the heart of the observer. And in Exodus 3.2, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And what will happen when Gideon brings a sacrifice to the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh will uh, touch the end of his staff, to the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rises out of the rock and consumes the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departs out of his sight. That's in verse uh, verse 21. So there's a similarity there, and then uh, both Moses and Gideon have uh, protest their uh, competence at being able to fulfill uh, the mission. There are other things that are related to this. Uh, we can add that both Moses and Gideon at times will try to take matters into their own hands, and they uh, both are involved in producing an idolatrous object coming out of their uh, situation. With, with Moses, it's not him. It's his brother Aaron that produces the golden calf. So this gives us something of the background and then the angel appeared when the angel does appear to him he says Yahweh is with you you mighty man of valor now there's a couple of things we ought to note here in terms of these statements he says that the lord is with you now what exactly does that mean well keep your place here in uh judges 6 and just turn back to genesis chapter 26 in Genesis chapter 26, we have a situation with 
that's described with Isaac and Abimelech. There's a famine in the land, and when it talks about famine in the land, remember this is the land that God has promised to, to uh, Abraham. And so there's a famine in the land now, and Isaac uh, goes to Abimelech, which is the title for the king of the Philistines. Literally, it means, break it down, Abi, A-B-I. We just saw that with the... With the um, uh, name of God and Aviezer means my father. Abimelech, Melech is the Hebrew word for for um, king. So it was a title for king that meant my father's king. We'll run into that again in the Gideon story. Uh, so there's a famine in the land, and God tells uh, tells Isaac not to go down to Egypt, which is what uh, his father Abraham had done. And so Isaac stays there, and he, uh, when you get down to about verse 23, he is going to uh, go up. Um, he's going to go up to Beersheba, where he's going to have a have to work out a conflict with Abimelech. But our point is to look at this phrase, "I am with you." So Isaac goes up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. Now, one of the things you ought to note is, as we go through this is that in the various places where God says, I am with you, it's associated with not fearing. Now, what does that tell you? If the statement is, I am with you, what is that designed to do? designed to get you to think about God's provision and protection in a situation to the degree that you trust in the sufficiency of God and not in your own power. You're trusting in God's power. So God is saying, I am with you. Don't be afraid. And the result of God's presence is blessing. God is backing Isaac, and he says, I'll bless you, multiply your descendants, and that's just a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant. When you get down to verse 27, Isaac says, Why have you come to me since... Uh, this is talking about... Uh, I think this is talking about Esau. Um, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. Oh, this is Abimelech. And he says, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. He has seen that uh, Isaac is protected by God, that God is providing for uh, Isaac and blessing Isaac. So the idea of God saying, I am with you, or a third-party observer saying, the Lord is with you, this is a sign that God is blessing, God is providing, God is protecting. A couple of chapters later, at Genesis 28, God tells uh, Jacob, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken for. So it's a promise of, of comfort, protection, provision, and that God ha- has given his promise uh, to the individual. Uh, David uh, is referenced uh, this way by Nathan in Second Samuel 7, verse 3. Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart. Well, what's the context? David had just said that he wants to build a temple. 
And so Nathan says, well, do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. The Lord is backing what you want to do. He's going to provide for you, and he's going to bless you and provide for you. Then what happens is that night God uh, corrects Nathan, but through the process he's going to tell Nathan, no, David's not going to build a temple, but I'm going to give him a covenant. And so this is the chapter that describes the Davidic covenant. Then we skip forward a few hundred years, and in Isaiah 41.10, which I cited earlier, we have the promise, fear not for what? For I am with you. What's the context? Don't be afraid. My power, my provision will take care of you. Uh, Isaiah 43.5, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. This is a long-term prophecy that's not fulfilled until the end of the, uh, end of the tribulation. And so God is promising that he's going to fulfill the covenant eventually, even though it may look at times as if Israel as a nation, life is hanging in the balance, and maybe they'll be destroyed. But God says, no, I am with you. Don't be afraid. Jeremiah 1.8, do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And then Uh, Eleven verses later, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. So what we see again and again is God's statement, I am with you, or the Lord is with you, is a statement of God's protection, his provision, and his blessing. Now, what happens at this point when we get uh, into... uh, when we get into Judges, Judges uh, 6, 13, and following, we're going to see that there's a real challenge that comes up because the, the test is really trusting in the sufficiency of God and the sufficiency of God's power uh, because Gideon's response isn't to focus on uh, the, what, what the... Uh, angel of the Lord has said that the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Uh, it's interesting when you look at this, the you in verse 12 is a second masculine singular. So the angel is saying, I'm with you, Gideon, a you singular. But when Gideon responds, look, look at what he says uh, in verse 13. He says, o, o my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Us, is, is, is that a third-person singular? No, it's not. It's a first-person plural. Now, the angel didn't say, I'm with all of you. He said, I'm with you singular. But Gideon doesn't even hear him. He is so concerned about and, and discouraged by their annual defeat by the Midianites that it's all about um, the nation, and he isn't catching the fact that he is being given this divine um, divine commission. And so he says, uh, if the Lord's with us, why has all this happened to us? What's he doing? He's questioning God's ability to fulfill his promises to Israel and that God really doesn't care. And this is how a lot of people get when things don't go the way they want them to or when they're suffering in their life. And they, it, number one, they ignore the fact that it's partially, if not totally, their responsibility for the failure, that the reason that Israel was in this position was because they had 
um, they had disobeyed God, violated the covenant. So there's a there's a, a, an attempt to absolve them of any responsibility. Secondly, it shows a, an abysmal ignorance on the part of, of Gideon because he doesn't re, doesn't understand the five stages of divine discipline that are outlined in Leviticus chapter 26. He doesn't realize this is part of the third and fourth uh, stages of divine discipline. So he doesn't. Uh, doesn't see the personal responsibility of Israel. And then he says, and where are all your miracles which our fathers told us about? So what's, what's the real core here? What's the real core problem? The core problem is that Gideon is rejecting the sufficiency of God's power that God can't take care of us. Well, where is he if he loves us so much and is if he's going to uh, be with us to protect us? And so this takes us over into the New Testament because of the centrality of the principle of the sufficiency of grace and the sufficiency of God's power in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 7 through 10. And I have uh, translated this a little more carefully. And what Paul is saying is that earlier in the chapter, he talks about the fact that there was a man who was taken to heaven and saw, had all these revelations. Of course, he's talking about himself in a third party, uh, in a third party type of way. And so when he gets down to verse seven, he says, he refers to these uh, revelations that were given to him in heaven. He says, even the exceeding greatness of the revelations Wherefore, in order that I might not be arrogantly lifted up, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, an angel of Satan, or a messenger of Satan, an angel of Satan to torment me. So he's talking about the fact that he's under some sort of uh, demonic attack in order to uh, hinder his ministry. So he's given this uh, angel of Satan to torment him that he might not be arrogantly lifted up. So God gives Satan permission to allow this uh, demon to create scenarios where Paul is going to come under persecution and suffering and all of these other things that happen there to describe a couple of verses uh, later. We'll get there in 2.10 in just a minute. And that, that the purpose of that was here's the greatest mind, the greatest theological mind of all history, and people aren't listening to him. They reject his message. They persecute him, all of these things. And he knows better. He has seen more. He's been given all of these uh, revelations from God about who knows what. We don't know because they're not all uh, disclosed to us. But nobody's listening to him. To be so aware of truth in a real sense and then be rejected, persecuted, ridiculed, uh, uh, stoned, all of the things that happened to Paul, um, it, it, it keeps him humble. It keeps him from ex exaggerating, focusing on, look at how much God has revealed to me. So that is why this thorn in the flesh is given to him. And Paul, Paul uh, pleads with the Lord three times. Now, that doesn't mean Paul is... Uh, out of line for praying that God would remove it because Paul doesn't know what's going on behind the curtain right now. All he knows is that 
he's facing the, this opposition and this persecution, this hostility. And so he does uh, the normal thing. He prays that God would remove it and that this uh, demon would depart from him. And then God answers his prayer. And the answer is no, but let me tell you why. You have to learn that my grace is sufficient for you, that my strength is made complete in weakness. And so Paul recognizes this principle of the sufficiency of God's grace. Now, what that means is God's power and God's grace are enough. And we live in a world today where a lot of people say, I believe the Bible is the word of God and it's breathed out by God, but I have to always add something to be able to face the problems of life. I need to go to counseling. I need to get on some kind of psychotropic drugs. I, need, I can live life and be so much easier to walk by the Spirit when I'm taking Zoloft or Prozac or whatever. And there's a lot of Christians that don't understand that, that up until the last 50 to 75 years with the popularity of psychotherapy, and um, psychology and drug therapy that Christians had all these same problems for the last uh, 1,900 years. And before that, the Old Testament saints struggled with all these same problems because we're all fallen creatures, and they didn't have any alternative other than to trust in God's sufficiency. And I wish I had the time to really, really study through uh, the history of Christianity. I just stumble on these things every now and then. And you realize that there are so many pastors and theologians and missionaries down through the centuries that have struggled with depression. Uh, They have struggled with anger. They've struggled with all kinds of emotional sins. And they didn't have anything other than to just go to the throne of God and beseech him for grace. And that teaches you that God's grace is sufficient. But if you don't really believe that God's enough and that he can enable me to go through this difficulty, then you'll never deal with the difficulty. God wants us to trust him only, not adding things. And see, this was Gideon's problem. Is he doesn't really think God's enough. And that's the problem with a lot of Christians. They just don't think God and doctrine and the word of God, the promises of God, they're just not enough because I still feel this way. He didn't say he's going to take it away. He's not going to remove our sin nature, but it enables us to walk through the fire and trust God and still at the same time develop joy and peace in our souls, the fruit of the Spirit. So this is what Paul is saying here. God says, no, I'm not going to take this away. You have to learn to deal with it by trusting in me in every situation. Because my grace is sufficient, it will get you through it. And so Paul's conclusion then is that it just changes his old mental attitude. He says, with pleasure, I would rather boast in my weakness, weaknesses that the power of Christ may be upon me. He has a Christ-centered, God's plan-centered mentality. And a lot of Christians say, well, you know, they bought the lie that if I'm a Christian, I'm just going to be happy all the time and God's going to give me this joy. Uh, But it comes through learning how to walk by the Spirit and exclusively trusting in Christ and not 
Christ or Scripture plus something else. And then Paul says, Therefore I take pleasure in weaknesses, in injuries, in calamities, in persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. It's, this verse, I think, tells us what the thorn in the flesh is, his opposition, dealing with all of the, uh, the rejection, the imprisonments, the floggings, the shipwrecks, the difficulties, uh, sleeping on the ground, and he doesn't have some nice uh, tent and a foam pad or cot from REI or uh, some other outfit. He's just sleeping on the rocks, uh, with uh, probably just a, a blanket, just a light blanket, nothing that's going to give him great comfort. And yet all of this, he relies, he learns to rely on the power of God and not the power of God plus the help of man. So then in Judges 6.13, Gideon said uh, to the angel, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us. See, he's just continuing to whine. And he says, if this is really true, if God's really with us, why then has all this happened to us? He just doesn't understand the the uh, first divine institution of personal responsibility, and the nation has failed to be responsible to the covenant, and the result of that is that God is bringing discipline upon the nation. And then he says, and where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Now, this is a really interesting and important statement here because it tells us that they, at least the fathers, had understood uh, what is called an a fortiori argument. This is an argument from strength. And in an a fortiori argument, what he is saying is that if God did something as powerful and as overwhelming as deliver us from slavery in Egypt and solve that problem that we face, that we can, God can handle any other problem. And that's exactly what is, what is brought to bear here is that, that God has demonstrated such great power in delivering them out of Egypt that there's no problem that they have in life that God can't deliver them from. And so what Gideon is focusing on is, well, he hasn't handled it the way I want him to. He hasn't given me this uh, solution to make my life easier. And that's what a problem with a lot of Christians is they just think that that God needs to make life easier for them. Um, And so... He continues to question. He says, where are all these miracles, these wonder works, literally? And the word for wonders is a word that's only applied uh, to God. And where are all his wonders, which our fathers told us about, saying, didn't the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And then he says, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So he's just self-absorbed like a lot of young baby infantile Christians. Now, this word for abandon is a distinctive word. It is a word that is only used here uh, in, in, um, in Judges, and it's not the word that is used to describe um, Israel's forsaking or abandoning the Lord in, uh, back in Judges 2.12 and 2.13, where it says they forsook or abandoned the Lord God of their fathers, 
And in Judges 2.13, they forsook or abandoned uh, the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. This is the word uh, az- uh, azav, which means to forsake or leave, but it's different. And so there, they're just completely abandoning God. And so the word that is used in Judges 6.13 is a word that like God's just ignoring us he, or he's not capable. So then we have to ask the question, why does he call Gideon mighty warrior? And I think part of it has to do with Gideon, the meaning of Gideon's name, because as a, a, a hewer of wood or a warrior who destroys the enemy, uh, that's already inherent within his, within his name. But you'll read some who say and hear some who say that this is all divine sarcasm because Gideon doesn't look like a divine warrior because he's hiding out in the, in the uh, threshing floor. But that's, or in the wine press, but that, he may be making a wise decision there so that he can keep as much of his um, harvest as possible. Is, is the angel of the Lord saying this about him as recognition of his position in the village, that he's something of the leadership in the village or the leader's, leader's family? Or is it looking to what he will become? And I think a lot of times when we look at these things, we go, well, it could be this or that or the other. I think that it's, it's a loaded term. I think all three are present that there's a little hint of sarcasm there because he really doesn't look like a mighty warrior living up to his name. Um, he does have a position in the village of, of uh, respect, and he, it does look to what he is going to accomplish. All of those, all of those are true. So uh, that brings us to Judges 6.14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel. From the hand of the Midianites, have I not sent you? Now, this is really another very important uh, passage. It starts off, let me see, okay. It starts off, then the Lord turned to him and said. Now, think about what's going on here. Gideon is down in the, in the um, uh, wine press, and the angel of the Lord sitting up on a rock above him And the Lord appears to him and says to him, The Lord's with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, is Gideon looking at the angel of the Lord? Yeah. Because he just saw this suddenly, uh, this being suddenly appear. And who's the angel of the Lord looking at? The angel of the Lord is looking at Gideon. He's commissioning Gideon. But something happened. In this process, as Gideon is complaining about the Lord, the angel of the Lord begins to turn away from him because he's not going to listen to Gideon badmouth what he's done. Okay, and now what happens? He, Gideon's finished his little rant, and so the uh, angel of the Lord now turns back to him. So that gives you the drama of the situation. The angel of the Lord is just turning his back on Gideon as he rants. And then in grace, he turns back to him. And now he says, go in this might of yours. What does that mean? What does that describing? 
It's an ambiguous term because of the way it's stated, but what is his strength? The point of this is that Gideon's strength is not his strength. It is God's strength. That's what he's doubting. That's why he's doubting the sufficiency of God to solve the problem of the nation. And so he says, the angel says, go in this might of yours, this power, because he is saying uh, already in, in here that, that God is going to uh, provide for him. The Lord is with you. That said it all right there. The Lord is the one who's going to provide you uh, with all that you need and give you the power that you need in order to solve the problem. So uh, now he says, go in this might of yours, that is what he's just been told, and you shall save Israel. Notice he doesn't say, oh, maybe you'll have a pretty good battle and you might save Israel. It is a direct promise. Now, when you have a direct promise from God, what does that mean? Number one, there's been revelation, a specific revelation of what God wants you to do. And number two, that's a, as a promise, that's something for you to trust in terms of the faith rest drill. And so he is told here very clearly that go in the power of God and you will deliver Israel. So it's very clear that he's got direct revelation that he is going to be used by God to deliver Israel from the Midianites. So he has no business saying, Lord, I'm going to put the fleece out so I make sure I really understand you. See, he understands that in God in his revealed will has specifically told him what he's supposed to do, and he gets the point. He will understand it. And then the second thing, is that that he's that is said by the angel says have i not sent you now it's translated as a question but it's interesting that it's not necessarily a question there is a word at the beginning in the hebrew sentence that un, under a lot of conditions it indicates a question but it also can indicate a statement and we're going to have to look at exodus 3 to see how this works out so the, the Lord is turning to Gideon, and Gideon knows that this is the Lord. And when he asks this, makes this statement, it's understood as either a question or a statement. But verse 16 is going to clearly answer the question. So after Gideon tries to weasel his way, wiggle his way out of it, so he said to him, Gideon says to the angel of the Lord, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. We've already seen, no, that's not true. And I'm the least in my father's house. That's not true. And he's got at least 11 servants. Now, in verse 16, the Lord says to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So again, this is a promise. I will be with you, saying it the second time, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. In other words, it's not going to be tough like you're fighting uh, a whole army. You're, it's going to be as if you were just fighting one person. Now this phrase, surely I will be with you, 
is the exact same phrase in the Hebrew that God speaks to Moses in Exodus 3.12. So when he's sending Moses to Pharaoh and Moses says, well, I can't really talk, I'm not good enough, uh, God says, I will certainly be with you. It's not a question. So it's clear from the parallel with the same uh, structure of language as 616, uh, God is promising, I will be with you. And then um, Gideon asked for a sign. Moses was given one graciously. Gideon asked for a sign. He says, if now I have found grace in your sight, so he recognizes that he's, he's a recipient of grace. So you see how he waffles. I know nobody here has ever waffled in trusting God, but Gideon does. Uh, he says, if I found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk to me. So this is the first sign. He's not getting to the fleece yet. So he has three times when he wants to cr- ask God for a sign because he's trying to get out of the commission and not be strengthened to do what God says to do. In verse 18, he, he tells the angel, begs him, don't depart from here. I pray until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. So he recognizes this is God, and he needs to bring a sacrifice. And so the angel's so gracious to him. He doesn't say, you're just, you're just blowing this every other sentence. He doesn't condemn him. He just, okay, I'll wait here. And so Gideon goes, and um, verse 19, Gideon goes in, prepares a young goat. What do you have to do to prepare a young goat? You've got to kill it. About 10 or 12 years ago, Jay Collins showed us how to uh, uh, skin a, kill, slaughter, butcher, skin a goat out when we went on the men's, uh, men's uh, camp out. And that, t- that takes a little while. Then you have to build a fire, and you have to cook it. You have to do everything. And so Gideon does all of, uh, all of that. So this takes time. Gideon goes in and prepares a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. And the meat he put in a basket, and then he put broth in a pot. Where do you get the broth? You have to cook the lamb before you can get the broth. So this is a time-consuming event. He's just not going to run in open the refrigerator, take out the uh, plastic container where he uh, bought the roast lamb and broth down at HEB and add some a few other things to it. He's got to do it from scratch, and it takes time. And he brings this out to the angel of the Lord under the terebinth tree and presents it to him. So the angel of the Lord then tells him, put the meat and the bread and lay them on the rock, pour out the broth, And then the angel of the Lord takes his staff and uh, touches the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire immediately comes from the rock and consumes the meat. It's a burnt offering and the unleavened bread. And then the angel of the Lord disappears, departs from his sight. Now Gideon perceives what has happened. So I think he has stages where he becomes more and more aware that this is God. And he perceives that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, oh, alas, he he's really rec- thinks he's going to die. 
Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Manoah, who's the father of Samson, has the same kind of encounter with the angel of the Lord later on. And so the Lord says to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Just because you have had a conversation with me doesn't mean you're going to die. And so Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it uh, Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. And to this day, that is the time that Judges was written, uh, it is still in the Ophrah of the Abizrites. So we'll come back next time to see the first task that God assigns to Gideon. But the thing we have to recognize here is this whole encounter is to bring to the surface the fact that God is sufficient. His power is sufficient. His grace is sufficient uh, to accomplish the task that he's given us. And that doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean it's just God waving his magic wand and those feelings are going to go away or that temptation's going to go away. But we are to be driven to the word to pray through scripture, to claim promises, and it is through that spiritual growth that we're going to have spiritual strength. And this is what's been discovered century after century throughout the church age until people could finally get Prozac and learn to walk by the Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that your grace is sufficient. It was sufficient for Paul. It was sufficient for Elijah. And these are all great uh, heroes of the faith that had to learn this process, to learn to trust you. And they had their failures many, many times. But, Father, we go through the same process. It is only through the testing of our faith that we gain endurance. And that endurance comes by constantly trusting in you and applying the word. So, Father, as we look at this example of Gideon, uh, we're, we're looking in the mirror but we have to learn to do what these heroes of the faith did, and that is to just claim these promises, walk by the Spirit, fail, fall, stumble, all those things, but that's the growth process. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in our inner man through the Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.